You know, Hawaii's death count due to COVID-19 stands at 811. Close to 200 of those were just in the month of September. That number would have overwhelmed Honolulu's morgue had it not been for the acquisition of three refrigerated containers for the medical examiner's office to use. It originally had just a capacity of 60. With the count so high now, the medical examiner is using two of those uh, three containers. We talked to Charlotte Carter this morning, a lead medical and lead uh, investigator, legal investigator with the ME's office, about the capacity issue. She is grateful they were able to work with the Honolulu Fire Department to acquire the needed equipment just before the surge in cases hit. We would not want to overcrowd our morgue. We have historically used an off-site secondary storage facility. It's a commercial, you know, most of the funeral homes and the hospitals use that facility as well. And we just also wanted to be able to make sure we could clear out any cases that we had in that facility to make space for the hospitals. So what is our general capacity? General is about 60. It really, it depends on which racks are in the refrigeration units at a time, but it's generally about 60 is what we say. And then how are we doing now? Well, we have two trailers in use. We do have quite a few spaces inside the internal morgue. So inside the morgue currently we have about 27 was the last count that I had, which is really good. Um, If we had had that and nobody in the trailers, I'd be really, really pleased with that type of space, especially, you know, as the holidays come around, it, it gets a little longer that people stay here generally. That was the other question I was going to ask, you know, because during the COVID times, a lot of people have put off funeral services, memorial services, and and I'm just trying to figure out, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean bodies are kept longer at the hospitals, the funeral homes, you know, at at our morgues? What's the snapshot? Every death is different. If somebody dies at home, they go, and it's not a medical examiner's case, they're going to go directly to the funeral home. If somebody dies at home and they are a medical examiner's case, they're going to come to us. And same for somebody passes away in a hospital or at a scene somewhere. You know, if they're in a car accident, they come to our office. And it really depends on the family's ability to to make those arrangements. Sometimes during the holidays, it's just more emotionally difficult and also more financially stressful to be doing that at that time. So, yeah, in general, people will remain in the morgue until, I mean, they have to remain somewhere in the refrigeration until arrangements are made. Okay, and then how long is that taking these days? Again, it depends on the family. You know, sometimes we have folks who make arrangements and the funeral home's able to pick up within a day or two of the death. Sometimes I've heard from some families where they say, you know, last week I heard from one family in particular that said they don't have an appointment with a mortuary until the 8th of November. Wow. Yeah, so I don't know how that... You know, that mortuary must just be very, very busy to not be able to accommodate a family until November. You know, over a month away at that point, it was almost six weeks away. And then how does that work for charges? We don't charge anything for our services. Okay. But it's just basically, you know, if we have the room, you can accommodate. Mm -hmm. And thank heavens that we had that capacity built into it. I mean, you you folks saw what was going on in the mainland where Mm -hmm. places were just, just stressed. Absolutely. And these trailers are nothing new to sort of the the death care industry or the mass fatality care, you know, environment. Everybody who's in those is aware that these exist, that these become necessary at certain points. And I'm just thankful we had them and didn't have to wait for them to be shipped because being in such a remote location, it could have taken a very long time if we had to rely on the federal government or other resources to be able to obtain something like that, you know, very, very quickly. 
And everybody's dealing with shortages of some type or another. You know, we had that whole thing with the oxygen tanks, and I think they were looking for spare tanks that they could bring in from the mainland. You know, I mean, those kinds of things you don't don't normally think about, but, you know, being an island state and so Mm -hmm. uh, dependent on shipping. Yeah, and and we're... Being remote, we just have a different set of challenges than other people because, you know, if two states away has something, it's just going to take a while to drive it there. But for us, if you have to put something on a boat and then, you know, during hurricane season, who knows how long that can take if there's rough waters or there's anything like that. We saw the record count for September, but at least right now we've got space. And I don't know how it is on the neighbor islands. I don't know what you're hearing from your counterparts over there. They operate a corner system, so Maui has their own morgue facility, but both Big Island and Kauai counties, they have a corner system that generally uses the hospitals or the mortuaries, is my understanding. I'm not super familiar, but they have a, they don't have their own facilities that they manage, so the hospitals or the funeral homes are already managing that for them. And gosh, I know the, the governor said that, you know, we're not out of the woods yet, you know, because there's a lag. You know, the, the counts are probably going to rise for a couple of weeks. Yeah, and and the death counts will still continue to be fairly high because there is that lag behind when the cases peak, the deaths still occur two to four to six weeks later, depending on how long people are hospitalized. Um, And we're seeing internally here at our department, the COVID deaths that we're seeing are people who don't seek medical care. You know, they get diagnosed or they don't get diagnosed and they're just sick for a couple weeks and nobody hears from them and then they're found deceased at home. So those are the cases that our office is managing, but anybody that's in the hospital that that passes away in the hospital, that's going to impact their operations and their morgue facility. And then are there particular precautions that you folks are having to take during this pandemic? Are all the COVID fatalities, you know, housed in one particular area? So we have changed our response a little We have a very small staff here. There's less than 25 people in our whole department, and we are the only people on island that do these jobs. So, And it's very specific, very particular, and very specialized. So we have taken sort of extra precautions to protect the staff because should somebody have a contact or have to quarantine or, or unfortunately, if they became positive, that would be a really big blow to our office. I mean, each person is 5% of our workforce. We have 10 investigators, three pathologists, three morgue techs, um, you know, support staff, laboratory staff. So it's a really small operation. So we are actually not responding to high, high risk scenes. So if we know somebody or, or somebody in the household is COVID positive, unless it's a sort of more difficult case, an infant death or a homicide or something that's just particularly difficult for us to to gather the information without physically going to the scene, we won't. So we're doing a as-needed basis for scenes that are high risk, as well as for hospitals. We are no longer responding to the hospitals unless it's those um, really high potential, high investigative need cases. And then how does that work, though, just for storing, you know, the bodies or all the COVID cases in one no. storage container, one area? No. No, no I mean, no post-mortem, the transmission, I believe, um, there's not a lot of data out there for it, but it is thought to be pretty low when somebody's no longer breathing. It's harder for them to expel the virus. So, but any person that is known to be COVID positive is put into a pretty thick and heavy-duty body bag. 
that may be a little morbid and a little too graphic for some of the Mm -hmm. listeners, and I apologize, but we do make sure that every precaution is taken with everybody. That's universal precautions. So our staff tends to protect themselves as though somebody's infectious regardless of their known status, but we don't segregate them in the morgue. We don't separate them from, from other decedents. We also want to be able to make sure that families who are going through such a difficult time know that their loved one is being taken care of um, as respectfully as possible. And that if they, I mean, God forbid those families, you know, COVID or not, those families are going through an incredibly emotional and difficult time. But if they even have COVID on top of that and they're unable to leave the house or they're hospitalized themselves, that's hopefully at least one less worry for them while they're healing themselves. That was Charlotte Carter, interim lead medical and legal investigator in the Honolulu Medical Examiner's Office. She says the city was fortunate to have been able to get the shipment of the extra containers just before the Delta surge hit our shores. And the other important thing to note is that the ME's office is in the middle of a $5 million renovation to double its capacity. But construction is going to be another year and a half. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the museum's galleries and outdoor courtyards until 9 p.m. on Friday and Saturday evenings. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Support for HPR comes from ProService Hawaii, whose team is committed to helping businesses overcome the challenges of HR today. ProService.com slash HR experts or by calling 808-207-7634. You are listening to The Conversation here on HPR One. So, what's one of the top things to do while visiting Kailua Kona on the Big Island? What do you think? A romantic sunset cruise? A walk to the cool forest of Hualalai? Well, how about shaking hands with an octopus? That's right. We found out that the Kanaloa Octopus Farm at the National uh, Natural Energy Lab of Hawaii is one of the most popular spots on the coast. Jacob Conroy started the farm five years ago with the goal of figuring out how to raise Hawaiian cephalopods through the entirety of their life cycle. Conroy spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote about how it's going. I've been doing aquaculture my entire career. I uh, do not have a timeline for this. This is my life's work. It's going to take a very long time. It's very, very slow science. We try to do replicated trials in order to eliminate variables and and figure out what exactly is not allowing them to grow through this critical paralarval stage. So to give you kind of an example, the last big project that I worked on over at the Oceanic Institute, we were doing the yellow tang very heavily fished for here in Hawaii due to the ornamental market. They would sell those fish over to the mainland. We were trying to raise them so that we could have a sustainable alternative. That project took about 14 years. Another example is bluefin tuna. People have been trying for about 40 years to raise bluefin tuna, and they've only gotten a handful through that larval stage. So this is going to take a lifetime. And I enjoy it. Hopefully we can get to the point where we develop enough data and science that um, someone else can take over and improve upon it and go from there. I might not see the fruits of my labor. Yeah, a lot of people are unfamiliar with uh, projects that take a lifetime. (laughs) 
and they don't really understand why we're five years into it and still haven't developed a, a proper technology for these guys. That context of similar aquaculture processes or endeavors for the yellow tang and the bluefin tuna was really helpful. Can you give listeners a little bit of clarification for what kind of beast just working with cephalopods is? How does it compare in terms of difficulty, sophistication, the needs of these animals? Yeah, good question. Um, I worked with fish, you know, what we would call fin fish in the industry. And when I started working with octopus, it was a totally different ballgame. You know, these animals don't like to be housed together. So it's hard to have high density tanks, which really helps you with space and, and efficiency. They fight each other. Um, you know, they, they eat different foods. It was, it took me a year or two to really, um, get the animal husbandry down before I could even start getting them happy enough to breed and, and produce paralarvae for us to do our trials on. Definitely a learning curve with that. It was much different than what I was used to raising. Do you have more of a sense that you're working with individuals when you work with cephalopods than maybe when you're working with yellow tang or bluefin tuna or other fish? The science behind octopus being extremely intelligent kind of got misconstrued by a paper that was published saying that octopus are the smartest invertebrate. When you compare them to vertebrates, they're not as smart. Smart is a vague term, not really a scientific term. So it's hard to qualify, hard to quantify, especially. I don't see a lot of evidence of them being more intelligent than animals I've worked with before. Urchins, yes. I used to work with urchins at the Anui Nui Fisheries Research Center over in Sand Island. They don't have much of a central nervous system. So yeah, they're not, not too intelligent, I would say. But I think what, what really gets people is that octopus are pretty aware of their surroundings. And they also have these prehensile arms you know, with suckers on them to kind of catch their prey, to reproduce, navigate their environment. And it's really made us somewhat anthropomorphize them because they're able to manipulate objects, open jars, things like that. You know, I'm really, really taking this from a scientific point of view. That, that is my opinion. I appreciate you acknowledging that. And I feel like octopus in particular are having kind of a cultural moment. Yes. There was the octopus teacher, the documentary that came out. There was a, a book prior to that called The Soul of the Octopus, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with. Yep. And since you are someone who is responsible for communicating this science to the public and works with these creatures every day, do you feel like that cultural moment is helping you do your job or making it more difficult for you to do your job? It is making it much more difficult to do my job. But on the other hand, it is enticing people to come and take our tours. So, you know, we do grant funding, but it is such a small amount of money compared to ecotourism. People come in enthralled with octopus, which I love. And then we're able to get on our soapbox and explain to people how important ocean conservation is, all the different types or methods of ocean conservation. You know, it doesn't have to just be picking up trash or, or limiting fishing. It's made the business aspect much better. It has made the science aspect much, much more difficult. It's definitely a controversial subject to, to some people. Here in the islands, you know, if you grow up here in Hawaii, octopus is food. The most support that I ever get is from locals here in Hawaii. Can you give an, an example of a difficulty you're encountering? It's more emotional. 
like it's my life's work. There was a policy paper that was published by NYU. It wasn't a scientific paper. It wasn't a research paper. Uh, they published it in a, in a policy journal and they just kind of ripped me apart, you know, saying it was an, an unethical science to do. And I respect their opinion. We had the National Geographic kind of come and defend us and saying that they were biased and, and so that made me happy, but it, it, it's, it's an emotion on emotional level. It, 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 it makes it more difficult, you know, cause it is my life's work. And just to be clear, the objections that people have are that one of the applications of this aquaculture technique could be for food. Correct. Used, I see. Correct. And I, I like to explain to people that that's not really the point. If we do publish, this technology, then yes, possibly it could be used for food production. They're not the best business. It, they may require a lot of food. So I don't really see that happening in our lifetimes or our children's lifetimes, but as a conservation technique, like stock enhancement, like a government uh, sponsored program to raise these animals, release them in the wild to enhance the stock. That's what I see happening more in our lifetimes. Raising octopus for food as a business, good luck. <laughs> You have committed your life to figuring out this process. Mm -hmm. And you've already said that you might not see the results of it in your lifetime. Correct. And so, as you said, you have to do things to continue to generate interest, like introduce people to the octopus through tours, which are publicly available. What would be the ideal situation for you in order to do this work? What would you need in terms of funding, conservation, interest? You know, um, it's a good question. And it's something that, you know, I asked myself in the very, very beginning. I was influenced to start thinking about starting this business after the Great Recession because there was just no grant funding available. And, you know, as a researcher, I realized I don't have a lot of job security. If the federal government goes back and forth and argues and says we need to fund this but, or we don't need to fund this, I'm at the whim of, of politics. I really wanted to do eco tours, which is a popular thing to do in Kona. There's a lot of different eco tours, coffee farms, things like that, in order to fund it. And so that honestly has, has been the best way that I can think of to really support the research. And uh, the state is very supportive. Uh, NELHA, the Natural Energy Lab of Hawaii Authority, they really like the idea of bringing in outside tourist money to fund research and uh, create jobs and have that money stay here in Hawaii. Tours are a lot of hard work, but I'm hoping, you know, tourism will stay a, a thing in Hawaii for, for, for quite a while. Obviously, COVID has showed that it's, it's not a sure thing, but I, I do think that tourism will be able to allow me to do this for quite some time. That was Jacob Conroy, owner of the Kanaloa Octopus Farm. He set the record straight for us on a most important question. The plural of octopus is octopuses. To find out more about his research, check the links on our website at hawaiipublicradio.org later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect and manage Oahu's drinking water resources for life 
Seven Ways to Save Water at BoardOfWaterSupply.com. You know, and joining us for today's reality check is Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Brittany Light. She has a follow-up story to the report of a, yet another Hawaiian monk seal found dead on Molokai. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning. And, you know, this is disheartening because so many people are doing so much to try and protect this endangered species. And it's hard to grasp that someone might be deliberately killing them. It's true. I spoke with a uh, conservation worker with Hawaii Marine Animal Response on Molokai. And, you know, he said that he thinks there's a, a disturbing pattern in the fact that there have been six recorded monk seal deaths on that island shores uh, during a nine-month span so far this year. The most recent one was on September 19th, and a woman who's a dentist on the island was walking her dogs, and and her dogs were acting funny, and and she looked around and thought it was a pile of rocks, and of course it was a monk seal, but it wasn't moving, and she quickly learned that that it was dead. And uh, you write that uh, it looked like the poor seal might have had bruises on its face. Yes. The woman who discovered the seal said, you know, to her untrained eye, it looked like the seal had um, bruising uh, around the eye, around the nose. And she reported that to federal officials when she called in the death. Um, We don't know yet what killed that monk seal, this most recent one, the sixth one to be found dead. It's uh, the body has been flown to Oahu. It's being kept on ice and uh, authorities are, are waiting for kind of the COVID surge to to come down a little bit until they're able to do a um, an examination to try to determine the cause of death. But we do know that two of the six seals, um, the the examinations show that they were uh, intentionally killed. So at least two of these six seals you know, were, were killed by humans, uh, which is really tragic and upsetting. Yeah, and, and, you know, generally when you get the necropsy reports, you know, you hear that maybe it's due to toxoplasmosis, which is that disease which is caused by uh, cat feces. Um, right. But, yeah, when they think that it might be, a, the you know, human uh, a death by uh, human hands, it, it is troublesome. It is. And, and so the first three seals found dead on the island, we, we also don't know what caused those deaths. The bodies were um, too far gone, too decayed um, for examiners to, to really piece it together and figure it out. So there's a bit of, of a mystery here. We, we don't know. It could have been natural causes. But uh, again, you know, the, the conservation, offic- conservation official on the ground said he, he really thinks this is a a troubling pattern, and, and there is a history, unfortunately, of intentional monk seal killings, um, you know, on Molokai and, and also elsewhere in the state. There have been monk seals that have been clubbed in the head to death. There have been monk seals, including a pregnant seal that was shot uh, with a gun. And so there is, you know, some aggression that, that sometimes is, is getting taken out on this animal, and I, I think a lot of that comes from misunderstanding. And the folks that do keep an eye out um, for the monk seals there on the island, I mean, I'm sure they were just probably devastated to hear of, you know, yet another death. Yes, the conservation official I talked to said when he found out, he he said he cried on and off all day 
Um, you know, they, they get to know these seals. They look out for them. They, they watch. And, and, you know, if they haul out onto a really crowded beach, they, you know, they're sure to, to, to look after the seal to make sure there aren't any issues. Um, you know, if, if they have any kind of medical issues or if there's any sign that, you know, they're getting caught in a net or a fishing hook. I mean, they know they really watch these seals. So it can be almost like losing a friend in a way. All right. Well, we hope we get they get to the bottom of this mystery. But thanks so much, Brittany. You're welcome. That was reporter Brittany Light with today's reality check. Um, to read her full story, go to civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dr. David Hiranaka on Hawaii Island, providing maxillofacial, facial plastic, and reconstructive surgery, specializing in comprehensive dental implant surgery. drdavidhiranaka.com. One of the things we love to bring you is stories about Hawaiians who make a lasting impression on the rest of the world. And do we have a hanaho for you? Beloved singer and musician Israel Kamakaviva Ole left an indelible mark on Hawaiian music history with one song in particular bringing him worldwide recognition. That song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, What a Wonderful World, has been used in popular commercials and movies. And this year, it had the distinction of being added to the Library of Congress National Recording Registry. The conversations Russell Subiano set out to understand the meaning of the honor and the story behind the iconic memory. There are over 170 million items in the Library of Congress's collection, Everything from books to films to music from across the U.S. and around the world representing various sections of people, places, and cultures. It's one of the world's largest libraries, yet still manages to be one of the most exclusive destinations for works worthy of preservation. Why are these items selected for inclusion, and how are they chosen? I called up the library's recorded sound curator, Matthew Barton, to find out. The recording registry has been an ongoing effort close to 20 years now to assemble 25 recordings at a time annually. Not simply a hall of fame, but a, a body of recordings, a continually growing body of recordings that represent not simply you know great moments, but great moments that really speak to us in music, but also in poetry and speeches and broadcasts and, and all kinds of things. If you go through the, the list, you'll see that in addition to all these musical performances, there are you know, radio broadcasts, great moments in, in sports that were captured on the radio, recordings of, of nature, and they all reflect in many ways on an American experience, and that's true for something like Is Is Somewhere Over the Rainbow, which has now been heard by countless millions of people, as it is for recordings that are still very obscure and that they haven't been heard by a lot of people, but you know they're nonetheless very significant. I think when we look at the list of those recently inducted with Is, I know some of them that stand out to me are Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation 1814 album. Mm-hmm. 
Jimmy Cliff's The Heart of It Comes soundtrack. And then interestingly enough, speaking to what you've said, Franklin Roosevelt's 1941 Christmas Address with Winston Churchill. How can we meet and worship with love and with uplifted spirit and heart in a world at war, a world of fighting and suffering and death? And also some of the earliest recordings of an American voice by Thomas Edison shortly after he invented his recording machine. I can see that it kind of spans a lot of different types of recordings, not just music mm-hmm. and not just... Going uh, all the way back. Yeah, yeah, yeah and not, right, and not just modern time, but going as far back as, as there are recordings. How does the selection process work? Is there a conscious effort to be as diverse in, in terms of time period and type of recording? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It goes through several stages. There's the National Recording Preservation Board, and anybody can make a suggestion, a nomination online at the library's website. It goes through several stages, and looking back and saying, okay, what's not here yet? Who's not here? And if you get to a certain stage with it, but all the recordings are from the same 25- or 30-year period, it's like, okay, we're... (laughs) <laughs> you know, something's wrong here. We gotta, mm-hmm. <laughs> we gotta open this up. Hawaii's location in the Pacific Ocean often makes it difficult for many of our local artists to find mainstream success in other parts of the world. But while the average consumer may not be familiar with some of our island music legends, Barton says the Library of Congress has been adding numerous recordings from Hawaii musicians for decades. In addition okay. to having the largest collection of books, we have the largest collection of recordings. Okay. And ab- absolutely, Hawaii- Hawaiian musicians are represented. I'm not going to say we have every single one. Mm-hmm. But there's been a lot more Hawaiian recording than a lot of mainlanders may realize. But we've got a you know, strong collection of Hawaiian recordings, but by no means is it complete. I think you went back, you know, you would find on our shelves great artists like Gabby Pahanui, mm-hmm. for instance. Well, he's actually, he's on the registry now. But other uh, Hawaiian artists really going back to very early times, early 1900s. Those who know Is, who are familiar with his music and his engaging personality, who understand his legacy and his status among Hawaii musicians, they won't be surprised that his music was selected for preservation. But I was still curious, why this particular song? What was it that captured the attention of the nation's library? Well, that one is so widely known. But that alone is not enough. There have been lots of songs that have been big hits. But the first, and for many people, perhaps still the only song by Is that they've they've ever heard, but it had a huge impact on the mainland. So it was, I guess, a recent instance of the way that Hawaiian music has reached the mainland. Gabby Bahanui and and Saul Huopi were two artists who uh, did that in in earlier times. So it was really, it kind of added to the the national soundtrack, I guess would be a way to put it. And I think in addition to it just being such a wonderful performance, I think it's a good addition in that the other recordings represent the two great guitar traditions of Hawaii, slap key and steel guitar. And is, is is representing the the great vocal traditions of Hawaii and also the uh, ukulele. Yeah, exactly. It's not just a showcase for 
voices and lyrics, but also some of the instruments that are either indigenous here or associated widely with our culture. Yeah, those are all considerations, yeah. All iconic works of art have an origin story. While some result from days and years of hard work and attempts at perfection, this one is different. In 2011, NPR's Renee Montaigne produced an episode for NPR's 50 Great Voices series, featuring Iz and the night he recorded Somewhere Over the Rainbow. In 1988, on his own, Israel Kamaka Viva Oli recorded a song that made him a legend. It began at 3 in the morning. Milan Bertosa was at the end of a long day in his Honolulu recording studio. And the phone rings, and there's a client of mine. He said, I've got, I've got Israel here. He said, well, he wants to come and record a demo. Well, shutting down, come back tomorrow. He said, no, no, here, talk to Israel. So he puts Israel on the phone. And he's this really sweet man. He's well-mannered, just kind, and, you know, please can I come in? I got this idea. At that, Bertosa relented and gave Israel 15 minutes to get there. Soon, there was a knock on the door. And in walks, like, the largest human being I had seen in my life. I put up some microphones, do a quick sound check, roll tape, and the first thing he does is somewhere over the rainbow. Meaning he just took his ukulele and started singing. He played and sang, and one take, and it was over. The next day, I got Israel a copy and filed the tape away. It would be five years before that tape came off the shelf. In 1993, Milan Bertosa was back in a studio with Israel making a solo album, and Bertosa had an epiphany. He fished out the recording of Over the Rainbow, and it ended up on Facing Future, still the best-selling Hawaiian album of all time, thanks to this one song. You know, there's been a bunch of articles written about Somewhere Over the Rainbow. He gets the lyrics wrong. He changes the melody. You know, if you sat there with a book and a scorecard, you could count the mistakes, or you could just listen to the song and smile. Israel Kamaka Viva Ole passed away in 1997, but his music lives on in the albums and playlists of his fans. And with Somewhere Over the Rainbow, now among other audio representing Hawaii's rich history of music and sound in the Library of Congress, he'll live on for future generations. Just one, one other thing. Okay, go ahead. And this, I don't know why, but it, it didn't occur to me until today, but on, on the record, somewhere over the rainbow, at the very beginning, he dedicates it to Gabby Pahanui. Right, right, he does. So it's like this sort of... <laughs> You know, and, and now they're both on the registry, so they're both sort of, you know, talking to each other in that way. Okay, this one's for Gabby. sound curator Matthew Barton and our Russell Subiono. They were talking about the inclusion of Israel Kamakaviva Ole's rainbow song in the National Registry uh, recording, recording Registry. And that is it for our show today. Tomorrow we check in on the latest stats, tracking sales for indoor dining and takeout. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.